You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Chris from LifeOutsideTheMaze.com, and we're going to be talking about optimism today on the Earn It and Invest podcast. I wouldn't have called myself a sickly child, but I had headaches every day throughout most of my younger years. Several visits to the doctor showed no real cause. In fact, we even got a CAT scan of my brain and found that everything was okay, but I still had these headaches. Eventually, our family doctor sent me to a biofeedback specialist. Now, if you don't know what biofeedback is, it's this idea that we can train ourselves to change our physiology to deal with chronic aches and pains, things like headaches. So I went to this practitioner and he taught me something called self-hypnosis. And what I would do is he taught me how to go into a meditative state and then concentrate on my head and neck muscles and relax them. In fact, he even taught me how to divert the blood flow from my brain. He taught me all sorts of things that eventually made the headaches better. In fact, it was the only thing that made them go away. So this had a lasting impact on my life, but believe it or not, there was something else he taught me that I dare say had even more of an impact. He taught me a technique for visualization. You see, he realized that as a young kid, I had anxiety about all sorts of things. I had anxiety about tests. I had anxiety about sports. I had anxiety about giving public speeches at school, which we were required to do as we got older. And so he taught me how to relax myself and then visualize the thing that scared me most And then he taught me how to picture myself doing that thing and messing up and then improving and fixing my problems and seeing myself do it perfectly. And this habit of visualization is something that I never let go of. In fact, I still do it today when I have something big that I'm worried about, whether I'm going to give a talk or whether I'm about to sit down and do a podcast, this visualization technique taught me that there was no mountain too high, no hurdle too big. In a sense, it taught me how to be optimistic, like there was nothing I couldn't accomplish. Chris is a 30-year-old financial independence convert a startup enthusiast, a writer on the blog Life Outside the Maze, and a tireless pilgrim on the windy road toward happiness. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doc G. It's great to be here. 
It's great to have you. You were on an episode of the What's Up Next podcast about startups, which was a lot of fun and still important today, especially in our economy where people are losing their jobs. A lot of people are wondering how to get into a side hustle or their own startup. So very important today. Yeah, it's uh, this is a little bit of a change of gears from our last chat. And I'm excited to kind of talk about both sides of things here from startups to now optimism. Well, let's talk a little bit about optimism. You recently did a series of blog posts on positivity and optimism. How did you stumble onto this topic? So, you know, that's a good question. And I'm I'm thinking about your intro, which, by the way, was super fantastic, as they always are. And I was thinking a little bit about my childhood and optimism as well. You know, I was raised in the Midwest and mental health was not a big focus. It was more grin and bear it. And so I think this was a learned, a learned skill for me. I had some natural tendencies, but it's something I've worked on over time. And so how I kind of stumbled upon this is recently two things happened. One, I read this blog post about the law of attraction, which is sort of this pseudoscientific idea that there's a physical pull in the universe of like energies. And so if you think enough about money, money will be pulled toward you through some gravitational force. And as a person with a technical background, the use of some of those scientific words in those ways kind of bothered me. And I started reading about that a bit. And around the same time, another friend recommended this Tony Robbins clip to me. And in it, he talks about sort of these six basic human needs and he was classifying people under these needs and 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 these things got me thinking about optimism i started looking into the tony robbins piece and i was wondering you know why these six needs what other needs were considered what's the research behind this and so i started googling around and i found that really the research was tony robbins himself after talking to (laughs) Nothing. I don't want to be too negative on Tony Robbins. I think, I think his enthusiasm and optimism are fantastic. But as a as a scientific person, that that also made me think: if you're going around and sharing this framework and it's based on your own intuition, is it really a framework? And so, so that sent me down this path of of really just researching. You know, I'm I'm not an ac- academic, like you said. I come from an entrepreneurial and technical background. But when I'm really interested in knowing the answers, I often turn toward research. And so I started reading, what does the research say about this? And I was actually pretty blown away. And so that became the inspiration for for, uh, the second half of that two-part series on optimism. It's almost not surprising in what feels like such pessimistic times, times that feel out of our control with a pandemic and a recession and certainly a lot of the social upheaval going on right now that many of us do feel a pull towards some of what you and I as academics would think of more hokey concepts, right? This idea you can pull money towards you or even some of the florid optimism of Tony Robbins do you think you can feel optimistic in such pessimistic times? That's a great question. I I absolutely think you can. And I think now more than ever, it's necessary. And so you mentioned some of the social upheaval and then 
you know, COVID-19 and all the associated social distancing. And those things have a huge impact on us. You mentioned, again, in your intro about this link between physical and mental health. And it's something we often take for granted. I think that we are more fearful right now and under stress as a population than we are probably acknowledging. I mean, that's, again, part of why I thought this was important to chat about and and wanted to connect with you on it. You know, my wife, she is still working. And at her job, she manages a large team of over 50 people. And she's shared some of the stories of how short-tempered people seem over the smallest things or how they have to take personal days because they're going through some depression issues from the distancing. I've got two boys at home, much like a lot of people out there whose families are all kind of quarantining together. And, you know, even my youngest, I, I walked by his bedroom door one day and I heard him saying to himself all these really horrible things. He was saying, oh, my life is my life is so horrible. And he was making these noises and it was this really negative self-talk. When I put all these things together, I guess social media as well, you and I both being in sort of you in podcasting and blogging and me as a blogger, I'm on social media as a side effect of doing these endeavors. And the general sentiment on social media seems to be shorter tempers, um, a lot more animosity and polarization. And so I think that optimism can really help with that. It can help give you an alternative narrative and also be a strength that you can draw upon during these tough times, you know, during times where we're trying to make social change happen and during times where we're trying to live our lives in the richest way possible under all these constraints. I feel like this begs the nature versus nurture question. And I would almost frame it as personality trait versus learned behavior. Start by talking about yourself and then let's talk about people in general. Is optimism a personality trait? Is it innate in us? Is it genetic? Or is it something we learn as we get older and know more? I love that question. I'm going to give you the the scientific answer first, as I understand it. So in reading the research, it's interesting because some studies do suggest that parts of it are genetic. There was one test where they took twins and kind of, you know, compared them and found an aptitude or an inclination toward optimism. And there is a piece of it that seems to suggest it's genetic. At the same time, with anything genetic, it's about you know, what, what turns on those genes and activates them. And so it can definitely be learned and encouraged. And, and really the person who's considered kind of the godfather of positive psychology, this guy named um, Martin Seligman, he's been at it for over 30 years and he's the 31st most cited psychologist in the last century. And, and he firmly states that it can be learned and kind of talks about that. And so that's the researchy answer to that. As far as my personal answer, as far as optimism, I mentioned that it's something that I have worked on and fostered in my life. When I think back, I'm not Mr. Happy. I'm not some chipper in your face person, which some people think of as optimistic, but I do always view life as a process of getting better. 
you know, I have self-talk and an inner monologue that's always been, you know, you're really talented and you will get there even if you made a mistake or something happened in this case that was, that was outside of your control. And I think that's helped me a lot in life. Let's talk a little bit about that self-talk. And I want to bring in your blog post, especially the second one. You say pessimism is corrosive. Optimism begets more. Expand on that a little bit more. What does that mean? You know, optimism is more than just a, a chipper attitude or an upbeat sort of personality. From the research standpoint, the way they quantify it is in a couple of ways. One is dispositional optimism, and the other is attributional style. And so dispositional optimism is this general idea that the normal course of the universe is positive things in your life, and that negative or undesirable outcomes are sort of abnormal. And then attributional style is what we attribute events to in our lives, both positive and negative. People who are optimistic under that definition tend to see negative events as temporary, not very pervasive, meaning one small aspect as opposed to a sweeping trait of my personality, and they don't personalize them. And so uh, negative outcomes are due to something out of my control as opposed to in, in my control. In light of those definitions of optimism, the idea of Pessimism being corrosive and optimism begetting more comes down to two things. One, your subjective style. So I feel more, I feel more, more in control of my life. I feel like if I, if I put forth the effort, it will yield results. And then also objectively over time, there's been a number of studies that show that optimism changes, changes results and And I'll just cite one quick one, which is in the career front, one study, a meta study I read of over 275,000 people showed, it asked the question of, is career success, does that make someone positive and optimistic? Or is it positivity and optimism that get that success? And it went back and and looked at at the data along, along this huge set and found that that optimism and positivity actually precede success and and do relate to it. It has to do with more pro-social behavior, healthy behaviors being adopted. You're more popular or exhibit more leadership qualities, things like that. I've noticed that you and I both do the same thing. We connect those two words, optimism and positivity. Are they the same thing? I think they are. Positivity is the layman's term, and I think optimism is a way to define it from a research perspective. You mentioned some of the research when it comes to career. Let's tease out the research a little more. Let's start with physical health. What does the research say about optimism and physical health? Great question. So I want to start by giving you just the high-level advertisement for for optimism because the research painted this huge picture and I'll go into health but let me start by saying that when I was reading through this stuff I found that optimism is linked to greater career success better performance in athletics and and other competitive areas better overall health 
increase longevity, reduce stress, and increase resilience to trauma and adverse events. And that's a huge list. You know, I'm a skeptic, I'm a data-driven person, and that kind of blew me away. And so to get into your health question, you know, I just mentioned that big list. When you think of reduced stress and increased resilience to trauma or adverse events, those kind of make sense, right? They're intuitive. If I have a, a positive outlook and something bad happens, I can say, oh, no problem. It's not, it's temporary. You know, I'll get through it. And in terms of trauma, you know, if a natural disaster hits, I can rebuild, I'll be okay. But when you think of those things from a health standpoint, stress actually is a big component of that. And so it tells a really compelling tale when you look at this research. There's been hundreds of studies over the past 30 years that tie stress to the immune system. And so while stress can amp you up in the short term, your immunity, over the long term, it proves to suppress the immune system quite a bit. And just one study that I thought was really interesting followed university students for a year and they took dead mumps virus and injected it just under the skin in the arm. And then they evaluated the students' optimism over that year. And they found that as the levels of optimism went up, the cell-mediated response of the immune system went up as well. And so there was sort of that, that direct link. But stress, so there's, there's stress and immunity to various diseases, but stress also has a pretty direct impact on cardiovascular health. And so, you know, there's one interesting study where they evaluated people for number of positive thoughts. And then they subjected them to a negative emotional arousal, kind of worked them up. And then they measured how long it took their, you know, their heart rate to lower again. And they found that those with a greater number of positive thoughts had faster recovery. And when you take that from that very short term out to the long term, there's also research that indicates that those with a family history of heart disease who also have positive outlooks were one third less likely to have a heart attack or associated cardiovascular event within 25 years of the evaluation. And so to me, that, that blows me away. I mean, that's a huge percentage over a long period of time. So yeah, on a very micro level, from a health standpoint, the big trends that I saw were around immunity and around cardiovascular health. Now, the way those manifest themselves in a, in a variety of diseases or events gets more complex, but there's, there's also some really compelling data around longevity and how health compares to that. The term that comes to mind, which you've even mentioned once or twice, is resilience. It sounds like optimistic people are more resilient. They recover faster and are less likely to get sick in the first place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And not to murder you with research here, but that's been demonstrated as well. People who went through natural disasters proved to be more resilient if they measured higher on optimism tests students in an academic setting who are more optimistic have also proved more, more resilient in the research as well. So we've mentioned physical and mental health benefits. We've mentioned career. We've mentioned resilience. 
How about negative aspects? Is there anything wrong with optimism? Can we become overconfident, arrogant? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, I'll give a personal story on that one because <laughs> I, I am not immune to that arrogance or, or hubris as well. You know, there was a point in my career where, where everything was clicking, where I was, and actually that's, that's been a personal experience of mine that optimism builds on itself. And so the, the more optimistic, the better my performance is. The better it is, the bigger my reputation grows. And then more and more opportunities start to come. But yeah, to your point about negative side effects, I've certainly been in that position. There was a time in my career where that was happening. Everything was going great. And I was pulled into someone's office and offered this, this role, a promotional sort of role. And it wasn't formal yet. It was, hey, we're thinking of creating this role. And I was probably overconfident at the time. And I made some comment about how the person offering me this role, I said, oh, so you're looking to move up. You're looking for a promotion. And, you know, it was just a really arrogant way to look at the situation. He wasn't looking for a promotion. He thought this was something important in the company and wanted to know if I wanted to partner with him and try to build it. And I really rubbed him the wrong way. And so that's one of the negative, you know, if, if you let your optimism put you above other people or uh, turn into arrogance or hubris, I think it can really burn you. I think in my experience, it becomes tough to lead when people see that in you. And so that's, that's something to watch out for. I would point out from a research standpoint, you know, there is some evidence that optimism is not this silver bullet when it comes to health. And so this stress and immunity link I'm talking about, it doesn't work across every single possible ailment or disease you can have. And moreover, it's proven to be destructive in some cases. For example, while optimism has shown a positive correlation with, with beating breast cancer, some types of lung cancer, it's actually shown to be negative and speed up mortality because you know lung cancer is is a pretty gnarly disease most people don't beat it after a certain certain stage and so a sort of false sense of hope can hurt you in that case and that's what the research suggests as well i sense that whether we're talking about career or our health optimism and humility are not opposites and that maybe you can be both and what you're talking about in your career as well as with lung cancer too is that a certain amount of humility can be beneficial. Let's talk a little more specifics here. So if I'm listening to our conversation today and I want to take a look at my own life, how do I assess where I am on the optimism scale? How do I assess my own beliefs and habits? Is there some type of positivity index I can rate myself against? Yeah, that's a good question. So researchers have to quantify this stuff. And so they've, they've come up with tests to evaluate optimism. And one of the most broadly used was developed in the 80s and is still in use today. And it's sort of that attributional style test uh, where you're asked to put yourself in a number of situations and explain the cause of those situations. And then you get back a various number of scores. And 
you know, they're around the way you respond to positive events and also negative events. And so these tests are available, a couple of them. One is out of Penn State, and that's where a lot of this positive psychology research is happening. And they offer it free online. We could provide a a link in the show notes. There's also a a similar test provided by uh, Stanford. It's based on the same research. But these evaluations can be taken and you can kind kind of see how you compare to those in your demographic, generally, whether you're more positive, more optimistic or pessimistic, and so forth. And the interesting or the the very encouraging thing is that you can change those levels, you know, that they're, that you can do things to become a more optimistic person and flex those muscles, kind of build them up over time. Let's talk about a few of those things you can do. I saw in your blog post a number of examples. One was the ABCDE method. Can you talk about some ways in which we can flex that muscle and improve our optimism and positivity? The ABCDE method, it's a little long. <laughs> it's, it's not your pithy one-step headline, which may be why it's not super well-known yet, but it's a great framework. And essentially, it's making an intervention into your own thought process. And so A stands for adversity, B, belief, and C, consequence. And so, for example, your normal train of thought might be A, adversity. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. B, you have a belief on that. You think, I can't believe that moron was so rude. You know, what a selfish jerk. And then the consequence of that is you're angry. Maybe you're yelling obscenities and honking your horn. And those are kind of our automatic ABC processes. But that intervention adds a couple of steps and it's saying, Focus on when those things are happening in your life, providing two more steps. So dispute that belief, first of all. You know, that person's just rude and selfish and they're in a hurry. Potentially that driver has a health or family emergency. You know, they I've cut people off before as well. Perhaps I could give this person a break. And then the E leading from that disputing evidence is energize. And that sounds... Uh, a little motivational speakerish but the meaning there is you know take that alternate information and say okay if this is the case then i'm helping someone else out you know i'm glad i'm not in that situation myself and i feel more relaxed as a result and and this isn't something that that happens overnight but the idea of the abcde method is to practice it over time and to tell you the truth, Doc G, just in the past couple of weeks, while I've been looking through all this research, I've made a habit of starting to do this. And it's amazing how much disputing or alternate evidence is out there that I have been missing. And so it's really, really been an awakening for me in a way. Yeah, I love looking at the ABCDE method and changing E from energize to empathize. Because that's what I found in my own life is why did someone do the actions they did as opposed to assuming they did it for some noxious reason? As you were talking about, maybe they were rushing to the emergency room because they were having chest pain. And then empathize with the situation they could potentially be in as opposed to your own take on you being put out because of someone else's actions. So 
I really like that framework. I found that I use it a lot in my own life without thinking about it on such terms, but changing E to empathize as opposed to energize maybe fits my own personality better. I love that. Yeah. There's this thing about assuming positive intent that many of us have heard before. If you assume the other person had positive intent, why might they have done this? And that's another way of thinking of this alternate information and empathizing with that person. If you say, you know, it's not that this world is made up of good and bad people. Assume we're all good people and then try to empathize with what's going on over there. And uh, it can be a really, really freeing and empowering way of, of viewing things. Another technique you mention in your blog post is gratitude visits. What are those? Sure. Gratitude visit is just, it's an exercise where you find someone that means a lot to you in your life and you write them, you know, a a 300 word sort of letter that explains concretely what that person has meant to you in your life, how they've influenced your life. And then visit that person, read the letter out loud. And interestingly, the research has shown, and this this research is, is from Martin Seligman, the the psychologist I mentioned earlier, and the research has found that this results in an immediate boost in the writer's happiness, and that lasts at least a week after the visit, and and even a month later still lingers in some capacity. And so this idea of building others up and showing others how much they mean to you and all the positive things about themselves actually helps you. And it gets back to the piece you mentioned at the beginning of you know, pessimism being corrosive and optimism building. In this light, optimism is building across people, right? Because if I'm sharing with you, Doc G, everything I love about your work and how honest and insightful and empathetic you are, you you probably feel great. And I feel great as well. And it spreads. And that's that's part of the power of, of building with optimism. Well, I thank you. I do feel better already, even during this conversation. <laughs> So we talk about gratitude towards other people. There's also gratitude towards yourself. And I think that gets to the bottom of this three good things idea. Talk a little bit about that and how that can be an exercise to help you feel optimistic. Yeah. So this is another short exercise. And the idea with the three good things is at the end of the day, recall three positive things that happened to you during the day. Write them down by your bed each night. And, and describe why they happened. And this helps to sort of practice your attributional style of optimism. In other words, writing down how this was the result of, of traits in, in yourself, how it's something broad about your personality or how it's, it's permanent every day. You see that over and over. You're kind of practicing that through, through these three good things exercise. And so the research, again, to get back to that, shows that this one takes a little while to uh, take effect. But in research, those that did it, positive effects were observed within a week to a month after starting the exercise. And it's really just, like you said, taking that gratitude and turning it inward on yourself. Personally, I'll say that practicing gratitude has been transformational over the past year and a half for me. It's something that's really been, been big in my life. Today, our interview is with Chris from Life Outside the Maze, who started his career in startups and venture capital. 
But not everyone else has access to these types of investments, or at least they didn't. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today you can join our crowd's investment in Texi, a software startup that helps technicians and customer service teams see what the customer sees without ever stepping inside their home or office. It's safe, easy, and already revolutionizing how companies like Vodafone, Verizon, and Samsung support their customers. Let's take a closer look at Texi. It uses patented technology combining video, augmented reality, and computer vision AI. It allows companies to keep their customer service up and running, reducing costs and enhancing their customer experience. As the category leader in the visual assistance space and with remote support being essential during the pandemic, Texi is uniquely positioned to continue to maximize their market share with leading enterprise companies. You can get in early on Texi and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The R Crowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash EAI. I was excited while reading your blog post that you mentioned visualization clearly from my intro it's something that's meant a lot for me but also this idea of the future is unknown and a lot of us have anxiety about what's going to happen whether that's our own personal performance or how the world is going to be in general is visualization something people can practice on a regular basis to help them get more positive to be more optimistic you know, visualization from a performance perspective is is super effective. There's actually uh, research that shows in athletics, those that practice physically versus those that visualize versus those that do nothing, the visualizers and the practicers have similar results. And so visualization can be super effective. Even imagining your best self, you know, imagining things about yourself that are positive uh, along your personal identity, your relationships, and your professional career. Doing that for even five minutes a day proves really effective. There's research that shows 
after five minutes per day over two weeks, there's a measurable difference in evaluated optimism. So yeah, visualization can be, can be huge. So I want to bring this out more to the global view. I feel like during these times, especially of social upheaval, there's an elephant in the room in almost every conversation, and that's privilege. You and I are two white guys. I mean, we're two white, wealthy guys coming from middle-class families. Is it easy to talk about optimism and positivity from our privileged stance? I mean, is it harder for people of color or women or other groups that haven't had as much social advantages as maybe we've had? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, it, it is one of my big concerns in talking about optimism right now. I am a, a white man in tech uh, with all of the privileges and advantages that that provides. However, the research does show that across men, women, all demographics, all nationalities, etc., these things apply. And so when I think of the inequality today, and I think of some of these social justice issues, it is a lot to handle. And, and pessimism can be the obvious path. I think it's all the more reason to practice and try to build optimism while trying to create those changes, both in the world and in your personal life. And so And I'm hoping to throw this out there in that spirit, as opposed to some judgmental way of you need to be an optimist and not a pessimist when some have had far more challenges than others. I have to admit, I've set you up in a sense because I really believe there are two big themes from our conversation today, or at least that underlie our conversation today. One is, can you be optimistic during pessimistic times? And two, is optimism come from a place of privilege? And the reason why I think those kind of are two central themes is it leads to, I think my final question is, what is the connection between optimism, positivity, and wealth? Interesting question. I mean, the the research I cited about career success does suggest that optimism leads to to money, to wealth, to success. You know, you're rewarded that wealth based on your impact. And you're going to be better set up to make an impact with a more optimistic style. It's a big question that you ask and hmm, <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah, no, it was, you, it was, it was meant to be a tough question. I'll tell you the truth. I, I don't have an easy or boxed answer for that either. What I do know is that, again, many people feel like they have lost control of their situations, whether that be because we are in hard times, or whether that be because maybe they're part of a group which has not had equal opportunities. I think a lot of those things were working on a community as changing. But some of these exercises about optimism may be beneficial as a path to wealth, even as all these other things hopefully will come to fruition and improve also. So I feel like it is another armament in your arsenal to try to move from having less to having more. I, as you, am a guy who had a decent amount of privilege growing up. So I can't speak to what all those things feel like. 
But I think for all of us, the question is, are there some things that we can do and learn to succeed and to build our financial independence? And it certainly seems to me like learning some of these exercises surrounding optimism and positivity are helpful. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I guess I could add to that is, you know, while I am a person of privilege, optimism and success and the things I have aren't directly linked. You know, this idea of there's been times in my life where I've felt extremely optimistic and positive times in college and early in my career when I had very little, there were times later when everything seemed to be going well, but I didn't have that, that positive outlook. And, you know, there's multiple kinds of wealth and it's something I've really explored after reaching financial independence. And by that, I mean, about a year and a half ago, I left traditional work when I had saved enough to live uh, passively off of investment returns. And post-financial independence, I've really been exploring these multiple kinds of wealth. And yes, money should not be undersold as a tool in your life. At the same time, gratitude and an optimistic outlook are huge. And you know, it's going to sound cheesy, but I certainly feel wealthier developing those. And so the way that I think this gets back to those with less privilege or more hardships, especially during these times, is that the external world and what's going on is a big deal. And it's one piece of it. But the way that I've felt at least personally inside is not always directly linked. And so I think practicing some of these things despite or outside of some of those challenges, one, it can help you on the wealth front, like we've talked about. Two, it can help you. And when I say wealth, I mean monetary wealth. And two, it can help you in the other aspects of the wealth that I mentioned that I think only empower you despite those challenges and to create that change that we all need to make together. I love this analogy of optimism and positivity as a type of currency. And maybe when we see out in the world that there's more pessimism, we can inject a little bit of that or invest our optimism and positivity into a world that right now maybe needs it. And maybe that's one of our goals is to exercise and strengthen those muscles so that we can help our world and our community right now, which is suffering from a huge amount of pessimism and could certainly use a little injection of optimism. Can this stuff go too far? I asked this once already, but I think it's worth talking about again. You've mentioned Tony Robbins before. Also in your blog post, you mentioned The Secret, which, you know, years ago, I think it was on Oprah, and this whole idea that if you wanted something, it would come to you. And, you know, I I think sometimes there are also some negative messages there. Can we go too far? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that optimism and positivity is often the realm of motivational speakers and new age spirituality, you know, this view of 
energies and auras and things that that really have no scientific language or analysis by which to measure them. I think that amongst successful people and more, let's see, scientific and and sort of uh, professional professional scientific people, uh, we tend to focus a lot more on developing skills and uh, work ethic. But optimism is a huge piece. And I think for me, that's been revealed through the, the research. I also think that motivation has its place and it can make you feel empowered in the moment. But for something that really sustains you, you know, I look to some of these exercises based on research and some of the data. And to me, that, that carries a lot of weight. And so I'm not against the motivational speech and the things you watch online to kind of get you moving and get you out of a funk. But I think in time, they can easily become a crutch. You know, I've known people that have gone to five Tony Robbins seminars for the last five years, spending five grand a piece. And I kind of want to be like, well, if you paid five grand, shouldn't it have worked in year one or two? And so to me, that's the distinction of kind of the science versus just the motivation side of it. I'm reminded of this idea of it shouldn't feel like you're part of a cult or it shouldn't feel like you're following a guru. You can be positive and optimistic without going that far, I guess. Absolutely. Well, Chris, from Life Outside the Maze, this has been an amazing conversation. Certainly what the world needs now is a little more optimism and positivity. Can you tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been about a year, a little over a year and a half since I left my traditional job to kind of do things differently, to focus on some stuff outside of traditional career path and, and straight finances, but, but try to make some decisions differently. And, you know, in that time I've, I've traveled and done a number of adventures and what's up next for me right now is, you know, some of those adventures and travels obviously worked out because I could move around and I could be in large groups of people right now. We may not have that luxury and so what's up next for me is, is focusing less on that outward stuff and more, more inward things like mindfulness, like gratitude, and like this optimism that we're talking about today. So you, you can find me along those lines over at lifeoutsidethemaze.com. And I started this blog with a big focus on finances, on that aspect of wealth, but it's certainly now broadened to be really more about enjoying each day and, and being happier. And I found that to be a complex mix of physical and mental health habits, community, etc. And so if you want to uh, stop by and check it out or reach out to me, Life Outside the Maze is the, the place to do it. And I'm also on Twitter at Outside Maze. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Chris from Life Outside the Maze. That's a wrap. 
You all are used to listening to me interview people on the Earn and Invest podcast, but occasionally I get the chance to be on some of my friends' shows. This week, episode 28, A Life Well Lived with Doc G. I was on the Financial Freedom Podcast, that's financialfreedompodcast.com, with my good friend Grant Sabatier. We talked about life mindset, and personal finance. It was a great show. And in fact, I wanted to share a clip with you here today. I hope you enjoy. What are the answers? And I'm asking that in the context of, I remember a conversation we had that really stuck with me where I think it was earlier in the pandemic when we were chatting and you were talking about, you spend a lot of time with your kids but you were you were wondering, you know, am I making the most sort of of these moments and of this time? And that that really kind of stuck with me. Can you talk about some of the practices that you bring into the everyday moment to try to get the most of it? Sure. I think there are a few big ones. Some of them are going to sound a little bit cliched, but I think that's because they're so good mm-hmm. that we've all heard this before. But first and foremost, intention. I realized in my life, I'm going to screw things up over and over and over again I'm going to go halfway. I'm not going to complete my promises. It's just human nature. So what I've decided first and foremost is to really center myself in the right intentions. So I found I'm a lot happier when I go about life with great intentions. And then I'm true to those, right? So, and that sometimes takes being brave, right? Sometimes you need to fess up to mistakes. Sometimes you need to take responsibility when things don't go well. But if you do what you do with the right intentions, if your heart behind your actions is right, most of the time things will work out. That's one intention. Two, we've all heard this one before, gratitude. I think the more gratitude you have in life, the happier you will be and the better your relationships will be. And think about how many times where you're interacting with someone in your life and they're annoying you, right? They're doing something that they've done before and it annoys you. Like, how can you turn that around? Sometimes I question, I say, yeah, I'm really annoyed and I'm starting to get sharp with them. But look at all these really nice things they also do for me and the people around them. So I really try to center myself in gratitude because I think it just gives me a much more optimistic way of looking at the world. And last but not least, forgiveness. First of yourself, I've had to learn to forgive myself over and over and over again because I have incredibly high standards. I am an overachiever. And for the first, whatever, 30, 40 years of my life, I've set such high standards that no matter how often I met them, I would always fall short of the next one. And that sets you up to be fairly unhappy. And I'm not saying that having high standards isn't good. I'm not saying that achievements aren't good. But I've also decided to forgive myself for those things where I fell short and say that sometimes it's okay to settle for being being mediocre and not push yourself to that next level. That sometimes pushing yourself to that next level doesn't make you happier, but just makes you more crazy. So forgiving yourself and then forgiving other people because It's a long life we live, and God knows I've made enough mistakes, and people have had to forgive me for them. So I've decided that I'm going to really try to forgive people. And I've been lucky enough that I've lived most of my life where I generally don't dislike anyone. I mostly dislike traits about people. 
But I've learned that if you can take some of that hate and anger out of yourself, life is a lot better. So those are the three, I think, guiding principles that help me kind of be centered, be in the moment. There are also a lot of habits that go along with that, like habits like meditation, habits like exercise. I've found, for instance, that occasionally, although I'm a fairly calm person, occasionally out of the blue, I will just get anxiety, right? So what do I do? I've started listening to classical music, put on some classical music and just be. So there are some habits that go along with the mindset. And when you put the mindset and the habits together, I found that it's really helped me feel a lot happier in life and certainly have a lot less stress and anxiety. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was, that was really beautiful to me. It sounds like a, almost like a a life practice that you're bringing into every moment you've built what sounds like somewhat of a scientific, almost medical approach to living in the moment and being and feeling fully alive you know, it's kind of like learning the scales of life and then now you're playing the music. So it's so beautiful to hear. And thank you for sharing that. I think those tips are amazing. You know, one of the things that I've always admired about you is since we've known each other, it seems like you've been spending a lot of time really doing what you love. And we, I know you've talked about you love podcasting, you love writing. What first attracted me to you was when I read your blog and I don't know if you blog anymore, but I was so, so attracted to your writing style, these short sort of reflective pieces, almost sort of meditations in a way. And I, and I really, I could tell that you were thinking deeply and uh, you were just the kind of guy that I wanted to, to get to know. It seems like you've now in creating all of this content, you're doing what you love and you're happier than ever no matter what kind of the outcome. And I'm saying that vis-a-vis, there's something in my own life where simply being truthful with myself and sharing my anxieties and just everything at the deepest level of my being has come back to me tenfold in terms of fulfillment and love and connection. And that was something I never could have imagined. You know, we always hide so much, but I tend to find the more that I share with everyone, the more vulnerable and open I am, the richer my life becomes. And I wonder if you could talk about your experience with that. So I think a lot of this comes back to self-forgiveness. Something amazing happens when you forgive yourself. Like when you say, I am imperfect and that's okay. And one of those things is you become very open to sharing those things that are important in you because you're like, I'm not perfect and that's okay, but this is what's important to me. As I grew older and I was really hard on myself as a kid. So my father died when I was eight and certainly I carried this feeling that somehow I was responsible, right? I was eight years old. Eight-year-olds don't know anything a caregiver leaves and you think it's your fault. And so I carried that with me for a few decades. And at some point I realized that that was something that happened to me, not because of me. And that strange realization taught me a lot about self-forgiveness and a lot about self-acceptance. And once I was there, I realized that there was very little in this world, in a sense, that could hurt me 
because I could speak my truths and I already fought that battle inside myself about being good enough, about making mistakes, about falling short. And once I came to terms with that part of myself, it just became really easy and open to, for instance, write these blog posts, which I was writing at one point every day that were very authentically me. And I think that maybe one of the things you connected with is when you read a blog post of mine on Diversify, that was the essence of who I was unabashedly and unashamedly. And that was something that really gave me power. I mean, talk about letting go of those things that bring you down and letting go of those things that cause you stress and anxiety. If you come to the conclusion that basically I'm a good person who means well, and that gives you permission to start expressing all those things inside of you that you find important and that all of a sudden there are people there who can read it and can share that with you. It just promotes a good, healthy feeling about yourself and about life in general. Thanks so much. Yeah, that was fun. You know, I think, it, I think it's an important conversation. One piece we didn't touch on, I think, is the most compelling piece, and that's around longevity. Okay. Um, the data set there is the largest of any, and it's it's really huge. And so I'm wondering if we might do a blurb on that and see if you yeah. could put talk it about in it right talk about it right now, and I'll fit it in. Okay. I'm trying to think of what transition you might put it in under. Okay. So Chris, tell me what does studies of longevity tell us about optimism and positivity? Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about health and its effects on immunity and cardiovascular health. When you look at longevity, that is perhaps the most compelling data of all. And if you're into data like I am, you salivate over these numbers because um, there's, you know, one data set from the Women's Health Health Initiative shows in a in a sample size of over 97,000 women, optimists were less likely than pessimists to develop or die from coronary heart disease. They had lower cancer-related mortality and lower mortality due to all causes across eight years of study. And that's just one data set. There's other data sets, uh, you know, one of 70,000 women from the nurses health study that basically corroborates that showing um, a reduced risk of dying from every major cause of death, heart disease, stroke, respiratory disease, and infection um, also over around an eight year period. And Subsequent tests with both men and women have gone on to even try to quantify this and go so far as to say that uh, more more optimistic um, measuring subjects lived 11 to 15% longer on average. And so there's some really compelling data that says practicing this stuff not only helps you day to day, but gives you a longer runway in life, which to me is huge. So what you're saying is if you feel pretty certain that you'll live long, you probably will. I like it. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.